I think in Georgia, running nonpartisan is a good thing because we don't have the polarization of having to run by a party designation. And many people were saying, well, we want to inform the voters by putting a D or an R after the judge's name. And I go, that's just wrong. Partisan, that means biased. Do you want a biased judge? Do you want a judge with an agenda? No. What you want is someone who is qualified by their training, education, and experience. Hello, and welcome to See You in Court, the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system, what it means to you, and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the board of directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Good morning, friends and lovers of the law, and welcome to See You in Court. I am Robin Fraser-Clark, and with us here today, as always, is our uh, wonderful co-host, Lester Tate. Good morning, Lester. How are you? Good morning. I like that appellation, wonderful, you know, that's, uh, (laughs) uh, uh, but it's It's always, always, always good to be here. And, uh, and we've got a great, uh, a a great uh, guest today and a, and a very timely guest too, I think, uh, with, uh, uh, with uh, judicial elections and whatnot coming up uh, this year. That's right. We're excited. And so let me tell our listeners who our guest is today. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Georgia Court of Appeals and appellate law and what that is and what that means. And to help us understand all that, we're thrilled to have the presiding judge of the Georgia Court of Appeals with us, the Honorable Ann Elizabeth Barnes. Let me uh, introduce you to uh, Judge Barnes. Presiding Judge Ann Elizabeth Barnes was elected in 1998 to the Georgia Court of Appeals in a three-way race without a runoff. She was the first woman to be elected in a statewide judicial race without having been first appointed to the bench. Judge Barnes was re-elected to a second term in 2004, elected to a third term in 2010, and receiving more votes than any other candidate in the state of Georgia, then again re-elected in 2016. Currently, she is running for re-election this year in 2022. A native Georgian, Judge Barnes grew up in Chambly and attended DeKalb County Public Schools. She graduated magna cum laude from Georgia State University in 1979. Judge Barnes has earned three law degrees, a Juris Doctor from the University of Georgia, a Master of Laws in the Judicial Process from the University of Virginia, and a Master of Laws in Judicial Studies from Duke University. Judge Barnes was elected by her fellow judges as the Chief Judge of the Court of Appeals from 2006 to 2008. She has also served on many committees and commissions, including the Judicial Council of Georgia's Standing Committee on Policy, the Chief Justice's Commission on Professionalism, the Supreme Court Commission on Interpreters, the Domestic Violence Committee of the Judicial Council of Georgia, and the Georgia Commission on Child Support. Judge Barnes is a trustee of the Georgia Legal History Foundation and served as a director on the boards of the Georgia Court-Appointed Special Advocates, the Truancy Intervention Project, and the National Courts and Science Institute. She also served on the Judicial Education Program Advisory Board 
of the AEI Brookings Joint Center for Regulatory Studies. Judge Barnes is a uh, 2006 graduate of Leadership Atlanta. She is a member of the American, Atlanta, DeKalb, and Gate City Bar Associations, the Lawyers Club of Atlanta, and the Old War Horse Lawyers Club. She is a master of the Bleckley Inn of Court and a member and former District 5 Director of the National Association of Women Judges. Judge Barnes is a fellow of both the Lawyers Foundation of Georgia and the, Mer the American Bar Association. In 2012, Judge Barnes received the Romay Turner Powell Judicial Service Award from the Atlanta Bar Association Judicial Section, which she formerly chaired. Judge Barnes has been recognized for her service by the DeKalb County Bar Association, the Women in the Profession Committee of the Atlanta Bar Association, and the Young Lawyers Division of the State Bar of Georgia, and Justice Served. She has been twice recognized by the Barbados Association of Atlanta, receiving their Trident and Community Service Awards. Judge Barnes and her husband, Dr. Thomas I. Banks, a distinguished professor of physics at Rutgers University, live in Virginia Highlands with their dog, Tiger. Judge Barnes, welcome to the show. Thank you, it's great to be here, especially with such uh, great lawyers, both former bar presidents, and uh, uh, it's good to actually be able to talk to someone, you know, uh, and do something uh, that helps the public understand law. A lot of that has been uh, really wound down during lockdown and because yeah. of COVID. Well, I, I, I want to also welcome Tiger. I think I heard Tiger in the background there, Judge Barnes. At, yeah. uh, you were talking before that Ty we might hear Tiger from time to time. And uh, so we, we, we love having him as well. Uh, and, uh, don't, don't be sure to let him speak up uh, when he wants to there. <laughs> this is the year of the tiger. So perhaps you should be interviewing him instead. He's 16 years old and has a lot of wisdom for a, for a dog. He definitely wanted to make his presence known. And, and we're That's used right. to that on Zoom these days. After two years of using Zoom, we're used to all, all sorts of animals uh, making their presence known. So that's fine. We're glad to have him. But Judge Barnes, you make a good, a good point about um, educating lay folk about the law and the process and the rule of law, which I think has taken a beating, you know, over the last few years in a, in a, a different administration of the United States. But um, that's the purpose. Uh, one of the purposes of this podcast is to help educate laypersons about the law. And, and you come in, obviously, as a presiding judge of the Georgia Court of Appeals, the second highest court in the state of Georgia, and as John Judge John Ellington would always say, the busiest court in the in the in the United States is that still true, Judge Barnes? That y'all are the busiest court in the United States? Well, in terms of the number of cases and the number of written opinions, published and unpublished, that we author, we're down a little bit relative to our caseload, but I think we're still way up there because uh, most courts just don't have nearly as many cases as we do. Many uh, states our size and smaller, such as Louisiana, it seems that they have an, a, you know, they divide their state into uh, districts and they, it seems like they have an appellate judge uh, for every occasion. I think they have maybe 
50 in Louisiana, which is a smaller state, uh, the relative population, I think maybe roughly a third, a half to a third anyway. But uh, we, we are a very busy court. And because of that, we, we are very streamlined. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was interesting to see what was going to happen in lockdown when we were unable to uh, be in court in person. Well, um, let me ask you about the, the, the jurisdiction of the court. You're talking about being the busiest court, the most cases of any appellate court in, in the United States, which is amazing in and of itself. And then you took the, your court took jurisdiction back over domestic cases. Well, so that, so that had to have had, added hundreds it, of cases. Uh, the legislature and the Supreme Court gave it to us. They gave us some That's more, right. you know, we, it's, it's a form of trickle down. But, you know, we embraced that. Uh, we already had some limited uh, family law jurisdiction, and that was expanded along with some other areas. Um, you know, at one point, the thinking on the Georgia Court of Appeals is it was that that it was not a true intermediate appellate court. And there was this convoluted explanation in our court history where it was a court of last resort subject to certiorari, you know, and so on and so on. But, you know, in, in effect, it is an intermediate court. And obviously we don't have as many cases as California, but per judge, we probably have a lot more. I mean, I think they have, you know, a thousand judges or some ridiculous number of judges in California because it's such a huge state. Texas also has a lot of appellate judges, but for our size to only have 15, um, it's, it's still a very small bench. When I came to the court, it had just ex recently expanded to 10 judges with the addition of Judge Frank Eldridge. He was added on and brought it from nine to 10. And I was, you know, the the first judge not to get his or her own chair because it used to be with a smaller <laughs> court there were only nine chairs around the uh, uh, the what we call the bank room where we sit on bank which we never do for cases per se but for administrative matters and uh, everyone had their own chair and then when they retired they could take their chair home but uh, they just <laughs> Continued that policy when I came to the court, but the the expansion recently, relatively recently, to fifteen judges uh, really helped us in terms of our uh, average case per judge. Adding an entire panel was a good thing to do. So I, I want to ask you, you know, uh, I, I was uh, fortunate enough to. Uh, be the president of the Southeast American Board of Trial Advocates uh, last year, and I got to meet a lot of uh, lawyers and judges from places like Florida and Texas, and those are two of those states that are divided up into, you know, appellate courts. I think in Texas, if they don't sure. like the trial judge's ruling, they can literally take it upstairs, you know, where the appellate court sits in the same courthouse. And, uh, you know, a lot of those, too, they still sit in three-judge panels, and they sit in districts, and I was sort of doing the math here, which, despite being a Georgia Tech graduate, it's not my strong suit, but you've got 15 members, and uh, I think there are seven judicial districts in Georgia, which have nothing to do, really, with the Court of Appeals right now, but even if you took those seven judicial districts, uh, you, you have less than... 
uh, you, you have uh, uh, barely two uh, barely two judges per district if it were divided up into districts. But I wonder uh, if you could talk about some of the advantages of having a statewide court of appeals instead of having district courts of appeals. Um, I know one probably you get some conflicting uh, conflicting rulings with uh, you know where you have a, a, a district uh, court of appeal jurisdiction. You may one district may rule one way, but you also have different divisions and. Uh, I have on occasion seen uh, uh, different panels of the Court of Appeals decide things different way. So I'm sure, and I, I know you've been involved in so many national organizations, you're well-versed in the pros and cons of that. Could you talk about that a little bit? Well, I like ours because as you say, if you have a court system, an appellate court that's divided into districts, the law can just develop in in different directions. And, uh, you know, then the state Supreme Court is forced to resolve, you know, the differences. And, you know, when it might otherwise not be the sort of case that they have to take up, I think it's more efficient to do it this way. And even though Georgia is a huge state, relatively being the largest state uh, east of the Mississippi, still, most of the lawyers are concentrated in the urban areas, and uh, it's not so far that the judges can't come to the court for oral argument. Uh, I think it, it really does help with consistency. And um, also, I think one great thing an, about an appellate court like ours that sits in panels that you have you know, three minds working on a case and also, you know, the diversity, it, it helps with the opinions, but we switch from panel to panel and we have the opportunity to talk with other judges about say, you know, if I, if I had a question, for instance, about administrative law, I could go to uh, Judge Reese who, um, you know, served in an administrative capacity and it would be very familiar with that. Or um, say if I had a question about juvenile uh, court, Judge Phipps, in addition to serving on, I think the superior and the state court also served as a juvenile court judge. And um, having the judges together in one building, even though it isn't every day because you know, we have judges from all over the state and they don't come into the office to the state judicial center every day. It, it's good to have us all together. I think, as you pointed out, um, geographical separation into circuits could also exacerbate, you know, an inconsistency in, um, you know, lines of cases. And I, I think this helps. It doesn't prevent it because we do sit together as a panel for a year and we all look at the other cases, but with the volume of cases that come through, I was just looking at the statistics. Now this isn't published opinions, but I think, you know, we, we get roughly 3000 things a year. And, uh, you know, even if you read them all, you're not gonna remember them all and be able to consolidate, but it helps, it helps. So the first appellate uh, argument I ever saw uh, although I'm a native Georgian, was in front of the South Carolina Court of Appeals, and uh, I worked for for 
uh, now federal judge named Richard Gurgle, who was in private practice. We went in, he argued the case and all the judges got up. The three judges got up. They walked out into adjoining room, spent about 15, 20 minutes, then came back in. I learned that it was their practice that when they heard an argument, they immediately went out and discussed it and sort of took a preliminary vote before coming back in. I, I don't, I know the Georgia Court of Appeals does not do that. I don't know what they do in Louisiana or Florida or Texas, but is that a good practice or, or, or a bad practice? Well, I don't think it's a necessarily a bad practice at all. Um, it's good to discuss something while it's still fresh on your mind. That shouldn't be, of course, the final decision necessarily. Um, in, in the case of the Georgia Court of Appeals, we operate on a two-term rule, which means that we uh, must decide a case within two terms of our court, and there are three, three terms per year, or it would be affirmed by operation of law. So when we are hearing an oral argument case, that's not what we call a distress case. It's not coming to the end of the term. So it's a next term case. So it's good to kind of take the pulse of the other judges uh, and discuss it after the case is um, argued. But many times with the press of business, only the authoring judge, you know, really is 100% up on that case. I mean, we all have read the briefs and are familiar with it, but one judge is more familiar and we'll probably wait till the next term to circulate that case unless there's some urgency or it's really simple. Now, did they announce, uh, Mr. Tate, did they announce the uh, decision? No, they didn't. And, uh, you know, it may have been, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a big fan of oral advocacy probably because I like to talk. But uh, the, uh, you know, I think it, it left a, a distinct impression to me that what the lawyers said in court about their case really mattered, you know, to somebody and really might actually sway, you know, judges, you know, one way or another uh, in, in their oral argument. And uh, I, I thought it was a, I thought it was a great practice and, uh, you know, really gave me more confidence, I guess, uh, that, uh, that somebody was actually listening because as we all know, um, you know, and, and I, I don't, I don't mean to cast an aspersion on judge, not every judge reads, uh, all the briefs. We, we all know that. And I will confess not every lawyer has read every, <laughs> every brief. I've argued a few cases in my time where I hadn't read all the briefs. So I mean, that's part of the press of business. I know. But uh, having that dialogue uh, seemed to me to be uh, to be a be a pretty good practice. But they did not give you a decision. They came back in and heard the next case, then went out for fifteen minutes, then the next case, and went out for you know fifteen twenty minutes, and uh, it sort of proceeded like that. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. Uh, there was a counter uh, a counter argument to that at the time I came to the Court of Appeals, it had only recently been decided by the court that for the Court of Appeals, oral arguments would be discretionary. That means if you have an appeal in the Court of Appeals, it's not your right to be heard, it's your right to be read. Because of the 3000 
cases, uh, matters that, that come before the court, you know, only a small percentage actually, you know, make it to the oral arguments stage now. But if we say of the ones that get published opinions, if we argued all of those, we would need as many judges as they have in Texas or California or Louisiana, because it just takes up so much time. And um, the judges were so burdened because almost everyone requested oral argument. I think up until, I guess it was the early nineties, um, oral argument was not discretionary. If you asked uh, uh, Ms. Clark or, or Mr. Tate for an oral argument, you got one, even the, if the other side didn't want one and they didn't even have to show up. But the judges <laughs> used to think that and and an appellate court, a lot of lawyers and a lot of lay people don't understand that the Court of Appeals is not a do over. We don't take witnesses. We don't judge credibility. We might judge the credibility of the lawyer, but that's really not relevant to our decision. Mainly, we are a court for the correction of error made by the trial judge in the court below. We're not saying you know, who's the best looking lawyer arguing or who has the best argument. It's not, you know, moot court or, um, you know, uh, it's, it's, I may be so impressed with the brilliant argument that um, a lawyer who comes before me makes. And many times I have been, but then I look back at the briefs and we don't want people to argue their brief We've read their brief, what's the point of that? But if it's not in their brief, it's really, if it's a point that hasn't been brought up in their brief, they can't argue it. And that was, I'm going back to what the thinking was of these other judges that, well, we don't want them to argue their brief. And if it ain't in their brief somewhere, you know, we can't consider it. It's like, if it's not in the record, a lot of lawyers think we should read the newspapers and know what's going on in the world. And we do because we have to have a context, but we can't consider that explicitly in making our decision. You could ask me to take judicial notice of something, but um, people really do get confused by that, that the fact that we really don't want to quote, hear it because for some people, and, and I think you referred briefly to one judge who is no longer on the court, so I can share this, proudly would announce is I never read the briefs before I go on the bench because, you know, I want it to be all fresh. And, and basically, he really didn't care, I think. But, uh, <laughs> you know, because uh, the, the oral argument um, was just not important to him. Now, on the other hand, I met with, I had the wonderful opportunity to meet with the equivalent of the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, who was the head law lord. I can't remember the specific name for the law lord, the, the English system, they have law lords. And I asked him the question because when I came to the court, I was granting all my oral arguments. And, and now we only grant if they're really gonna be helpful to the court or helpful in some way, helping a new lawyer learn how to argue. Because many times an oral argument is not going to really be helpful to the court if it's a you know, 
if it's just a question of statutory interpretation that is well settled, for instance. Um, but I asked him in England, are your oral arguments discretionary or mandatory? And he said, oh, they're all discretionary. But I said, well, how, how long do the lawyers have to argue? He said, well, there is no limit on oral argument. I said, no limit? He said, well, actually, sometimes we have a limit. There was a particularly complex case with many parties. And because of the complexity, we felt that we needed to limit it. So we limited the oral arguments to one week. Oh, gosh. One I week. In the Court of Appeals, it's 15 minutes per side. Well, you know, it's very interactive that, that the judges are asking questions and you that's know. like another trial it really is and it's you know i watched on uh you could watch online that, that you know now the law lords have been converted into the uk supreme court and they heard this case on the uh, uh suspension of parliament in the run-up to the brexit thing and they had like they had like five days of argument in front of the UK yeah. Supreme Court on that. And, you know, everyone, all the lawyers were there. Other interesting thing is for, for all the wigs and robes, the UK Supreme Court, they, they, they wear like business suits and, you know, courtroom attire. Mm -hmm. They look, they look like the lawyers now, but, I, you know, let, never let it be said that if I had a witness on cross and I don't get many appellate judges on cross-examination here, uh, but that I didn't, didn't press the point. And you said, uh, you know, well, a lot of times it really doesn't change anything. As a lawyer, what would you say to me if I said, I'm not going to waste my time applying for a for oral argument because nobody listens to it anyway? What's, what's the answer to why I should request oral argument in a case? Well, we do listen. And when we grant an oral argument, it's because we feel that oral argument will be helpful to the court. So if you come to oral argument, you, at least in my experience, about 90% of the time, you'll get one or more questions from the court and see, that's when you should rejoice. You know, you shouldn't, I, that's what I tell law students, especially because that means that you can answer the question that the court has and help the court come to the right decision because obviously we granted it because we thought it would be helpful. Maybe we want to ask you about something we were unable to find in the record, for instance. And that's when we always get that disappointed thing. Uh, one of my pet peeves is, oh, well, I wasn't the trial counsel. And that's always sad. Um, but we granted the oral argument, not just because we wanted to see a pretty face or hear a nice voice. We granted it to help us uh, make a decision because we have questions. And, you know, you don't want to push people aside, you know, the, the judge aside and say, oh, judge, I'll answer that question later. Answer the question right now, uh, because that's that's what you're there for, to answer our questions. You're not supposed to be asking us questions, you know, like in a deposition, somebody was- <laughs> Or a podcast, <laughs> or a podcast. Have, Judge, right. have you ever had a situation where neither party requested oral argument, but the court said, we want you to argue this? Because I'm not aware of questions? 
I am not aware of one. It could happen. It could happen. And and I have literally, uh, now that you say that, wondered why on earth didn't they ask for oral argument? Um, we do have a rule, and I don't know if this is explicit in our rules or just internal operating, that if you're late, you're too late to ask for oral argument. If you don't uh, ask in time, it's, it's due, you know, um, in a timely manner. But if you ask untimely, the, uh, the authoring judge can grant it. Only one judge can grant it because I remember I tried to grant an oral argument that was assigned to another judge. Uh, the old clerk, Bill Martin, brought it to me and I granted it, but it was uh, Judge Andrew's case. And uh, he rightly pointed out that our rule was that that case could not be heard on oral argument because um, it was the, the request for oral argument was made untimely and under our rules, only the authoring judge could grant that. And I really would have liked to uh, hear it because I was uh, new on the court. And, uh, you know, I, I think it would have been helpful to me. So in the other instances, does it require all three judges uh, that are on the panel or just one, any one, even any not one judge may grant, however, Normally, we will defer to the authoring judge if it's my case, and I say, well, that's a slam dunk. There's no sense in making lawyers come from Savannah to argue a case when I already see from the briefs, this is a clear, settled area of the law. And, you know, unlike in a jury trial, we don't have the discretion that a trial judge has that you know, a lot of times there's wiggle room. You know, the trial judge is judging credibility and can really make a difference in the result. But we don't have that kind of discretion. In most cases, we have almost no discretion uh, when it comes to uh, the law. Uh, why, why, why don't you tell us what? I mean, I, I think Robin and I know this because we've we've. Uh... We've been down there with with appeals many many times over the years, but for our audience, what's the who is the authoring judge? Because I don't think we've actually and, sort of defined oh, or told and, the audience and how, how it is. And how say, is that select? How's the authoring judge? Can you tell us a little bit about about sure. that? When is an authoring judge selected? How and what is it? Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, let me back up for those who. Um, are not familiar with appellate practice, if we have any lay people here. The Court of Appeals of Georgia has 15 judges and we sit in panels of three. Each panel of three sits together for an entire year. The chief judge chooses those panels and each panel is um, headed by a presiding judge, which by our practice and custom are, we have five panels uh, is, the, um, the, the five most senior judges on the court. I am the most senior judge on the court, although not the oldest. Um, and uh, so I had division one. So when say um, Mr. Lawyer or Ms. Lawyer files an appeal, it is assigned, it goes to the clerk's office and the clerk's office assigns in a random manner the uh, case 
to an authoring judge, one of the 15 judges. So it would go to that judge and the other two judges who are on that judge's panel for that period of time, assuming that there's no uh, standard recusal. You know, if, if uh, it turned out that uh, one of the judges was um, recused because it was a relative who'd filed the appeal or something like that, uh, we'd pull in someone for just that one case from another panel. So we normally don't need a senior judge to fill in if it's just you know on a recusal, but um, it's assigned. And then when the briefs and the oral argument requests come in, I may or may not look at other judges' um, briefs until we have an oral argument or until the case comes around because I have my own cases to do. But when my cases come in, uh, what I do is once we have briefs and we've, we've finished a distress period or in the case of one of my staff attorneys who's so fast, once he's, he's done all his um, drafts for me, I assign the, the case to a staff attorney to do a preliminary draft. And um, once that's assigned, before there's any preliminary draft done, that attorney has the administrative assistant and uh, say she or he, the, the staff attorney, brings me back and now they do it by email. The uh, briefs, any significant motions or orders from the trial judge, obviously not the whole record, I can look at that if I want to, and does a, like a paragraph to a couple of page summary, just a brief summary of what this case is about. Because I used to have them, when we were a little bit busier and a little bit fewer judges, I'd have those things stacked up. I'd have a triage, you know, other judges' cases, fast action on the top, you know, and then down and then criminal ahead of civil generally, unless it was expedited. But I'd have like a triage and we'd just have them stacked with paper. But when the case comes in and is assigned and we get briefs and then the staff attorney will bring me that. And I don't know what other people's process, but this is my process. I will look at it and give the staff attorney a direction to go. I mean, I may look at a case that's uh, being appealed that looks like it's being done solely for delay where the law is clear on the side of uh, the appellee and just say rule 36 this, you know, because it's a simple civil case. And uh, what does that mean? A rule 36 is, is an opinion that is not published, that's skeletal. It will say, instead of going to the, the time and trouble and difficulty of drafting an entire opinion on a matter that is settled law and probably wasn't briefed too well and is not going to assist the public, we'll say, this case is affirmed um, without a full written opinion for the following reasons. And we kind of have a, a checklist and it may be uh, that the trial court's order was so thorough and that we would have adopted that totally mm -hmm. as an opinion anyway. You know, the trial judges don't like that. They like for us to quote the thing and publish it. But um, 
you know, we're a very busy court and <laughs> it, it's not going to add to the law uh, if it's something that's settled and, and thorough and specific to one case. And sometimes things are so peculiar that it, this is a situation not likely to be repeated. It's not going to add to the law. Mm -hmm. And uh, sort of like non-published, which can be, I'm off track here, but can be controversial. There are reasons not to publish things. Um, for instance, we use initials, but sometimes in child molestation cases, for instance, there's really no need for that to be out there. I think it may, you know, not just uh, embarrass the children, but it might titillate a potential molester because sometimes there's some gruesome details that we really, you know, don't want to have to put out there unless we have to. So would a, a Rule 36 opinion or unpublished opinion, I guess, would ha have no precedential value? Correct. It would just be the law of the case. For that case. Okay. So if the case came back in any form or fashion, it would be governed by the disposition in, you know, the non-published opinion. Have you ever written dissents when you have a three three judge panel? It's a it could be two to one, two two wins the day. You ever written any dissents? Well, in the old days, that wasn't the way at all. Um, you know, it was never two to one until very recently. Uh, we it had to go out. All three judges had to concur fully, or at least you know. Uh, fully and specially, uh, you know, or the case would go what we called whole court. And whole court was very odd because for a while, whole court, instead of being the whole court, we had seven judge whole court and 12 judge whole court. And obviously, if you have seven of 12 judges, that's not the whole court, but we'd have a, you know, seven judge circulating path. And Georgia was an outlier in that, that and, you know, I'm kind of sad to see it go um, and uh, was not the initiator of this change because, because we had, uh, they didn't go out as 2-1 decisions. We had more consistency and more people got to see it and weigh in and um, more judges had the opportunity to um, vote on the case. Now it can just go out uh, to one. You have the opportunity to poll um, whether it should go to more judges to the whole court or not. But the thinking was that, that at the end of the term, this is when all the whole court cases would come up where a judge dissented and all the, the judges on the court or most of the judges on the court would have to look at it that judges didn't have enough time to do it and uh, that uh, it wasn't. And so some judges were doing things like, you know, concurring specially or what we called J.O. They would J.O. to make the case non-precedential. So if you look back at the older cases, in fact, that's still the law. Um, if you see a case where uh, Judge Barnes concurs in the judgment only. It means that I agree that the case should be affirmed, reversed, or whatever, but uh, I 
don't agree with the reasoning, but I'm not writing an opinion. So several of the things that you've talked about and some of the changes, uh, in fact, uh, like in granting, uh, granting or not granting oral argument or uh, with uh, uh, concurrences and uh, judgment only or dissents or whatnot or requiring three judges, all three judges on the panel to, to be involved in that. A lot of those seem like they're driven by time, you know, the amount of time that a judge has, which is obviously finite uh, to look at that. Uh, but also in some instances by travel, you know, you talked about having lawyers come from Savannah or, or, uh, uh, or, or maybe Cartersville uh, to, uh, you know, to argue the case. And I wonder if, uh, you know, with, you know, one of the remedies to that is to have more judges, you know, to hear the case, to give the cases a more plenary, uh, uh, have more time, uh, more ju judicial hours, I'll say, to look at a case. But also, uh, some of that too is controlled and, and it's sort of changed in the world in the last couple of years by Zoom because the appellate courts were really able to sort of not miss a beat. I mean, I've been extremely impressed with the Georgia Court of Appeals, Georgia Supreme Court, you know, and what they've done, you know, with, with uh, oral arguments. So do you see, uh, wh what do you see in the future uh, as happening? And I know you're not, uh, not in the legislature and you're governed by statute, but uh, just what direction do you see that going? Do we need more judges in order to have more time to do things uh, like you've expressed, you, you kind of enjoyed doing them that way, that you thought it was a good practice. And uh, do you see it being changed by the whole Zoom landscape? I mean, I know, you know, as a trial lawyer, there's certain things that have changed. I'm so glad to see the calendar call go by the by, you know, that was just such a waste of time, you know, to drive two hours to sit in the jury box and hidey hidey with your friends and tell the greatest lie that lawyers ever tell, which is ready when reached, you know, when it got, when it got your turn. So uh, wh what direction do you see the court going in there or the courts well, generally? I think that the Zoom issue with trial courts is very, very, very different than it is with uh, appellate courts. And you can see that. And, you know, as a trial lawyer, I noticed this not with any specific person, but with trial lawyers generally who are not specializing in appellate practice, um, they, they tend to conflate the two appellate courts and trial courts. They are so different. And the Court of Appeals is very, very, very different than the um, Supreme Court. But the major difference is between trial and appellate because appeals courts are not hearing uh, witnesses. Um, we don't have the discretion to consider uh, the emotional, the 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 empathy, the the so on. We, you know, we we are human beings, obviously, and we do have some discretion. But we have things called standards of review. So, also, there has been not the delay for us that there is in the trial courts because you know in, in the trial courts they have the criminal they have the right to confront their accuser and so far that hasn't been expanded to on zoom 
um, as far as I know, although I think you can consent to that. And I think there is an argument that maybe that will happen in the future in the trial courts, because there are statistics and studies showing that, for instance, me seeing a person and seeing a person in person, that they're able to fool me better than if I'm talking to them on the phone, that you can more judge credibility over the telephone, oddly, than in person, which makes no sense to me. But I've read that, um, that study and that statistic and heard it quoted more than once. So I think, you know, when you talk uh, COVID changes, technology changes in the trial court and the appellate courts, they're very different things. And uh, I don't think that that it's a bad thing to allow lawyers to argue Zoom anytime they want. In fact, I I would be in favor of if if you two lawyers want to Zoom an oral argument, it's your right to come in court to the extent that it's safe to do so, and you know that that we can do it without fear of some sort of pestilence or danger, but. Um, once, once the oral argument is granted, I think the lawyer should be allowed, my personal view is that the lawyer should be allowed to do it without saying, you know, why or why not. But that's just my personal preference. There are judges who want to look you in the eye. They don't want to talk to you on the telephone. They don't want to see you on the Zoom. They want to look you in the eye. And usually those are former trial lawyers who have the impression that that I am going to make this panel see my point. And uh, I, yeah, I we, might we, resemble we, some of those remarks. You know? I, same here. I was going to say, that's why we're trial lawyers, because we, right. we think right. our mere presence is going to persuade those 12 right. folks that we've never right. met before to do what we asked them to do. If we didn't think that, I don't think we'd be very successful, would we, Lester? Uh, yeah, I agree. Oh. I agree. You know, although it's funny, I, I've had. And look, know, like, you're probably right. Stop right there. Stop right there. <laughs> probably right about the jury. That's the difference. Yeah between a judge and the jury. The jury can be persuaded, and even the trial judge is allowed to be persuaded to a certain extent by, you know, the credibility of the lawyer and her or his case. We have to look at the facts as found below. We have to look at the law. And you know, I hear a lot of good lawyers coming up giving me jury arguments. And, you know, we all come off the bench just shaking our heads. I remember uh, one judge who's now a, a, a Supreme Court justice saying when some lawyer said, you have no idea how short 15 minutes can be. And he very calmly said, not from this side of the bench. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask. Um, I always feel like it should minutes. be longer than 15 minutes. I wish we had more time to argue well, for the court of appeals. ask for more time. Um, lawyers are allowed to ask for more time. In fact, yesterday I heard an oral argument, my panel did, where the um, each side had requested an additional five minutes and it had been requested and granted. In the old days, I mean, I would get so much flack because I would always grant that request. But many times we grant it not so that the lawyer can try to persuade us. We grant it 
so it'll be helpful for us in making a decision. So it's a different perspective. Well, and no matter how persuasive you are, we can't consider the fact that we may like or dislike you, um, that your argument pulls at our heartstrings. Um, we have to consider the law and the facts that are in front of us. And we have a narrow standard of review. In a lot of cases, we, we uh, have very, very little discretion. Do you, you know, one of the things that you sort of touch on is the, um, you know, the trial lawyer versus the appellate uh, lawyer. Um, and yeah, I, I remember talking to one of your, one of your uh, colleagues one time, and I've tried, I've tried a hundred or more jury trials. Um, and I said, yeah, I'm not really an appellate lawyer. And he said, well, how many appellate appearances do you have? And I said, 30 or 40. And he said, you're probably in the top 2%, you know, <laughs> of, uh, uh, but are you seeing more uh, appellate specialists, I'll say, uh, these days, as opposed to uh, specialist, specialist, yeah, in quotation marks, as opposed to, uh, as, as opposed to, 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 to uh, folks like Robin and I, who uh, we, we, think we, we argue our own cases. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, a, what a novel idea. We, yeah. we handle the whole case. <laughs> well, yes, I think, I think just because they're more lawyers and, and more cases and, uh, I think a lot of lawyers uh, never try a case at all. So if they uh, try a case, they usually settle it or, you know, don't. I mean, they, they just don't do it very often. It's really not efficient to uh, be your own, um, you know, appellate lawyer if you've never done it before, particularly if you've gone a long time and haven't done it. But on the other hand, a good lawyer who you know, all lawyers went to law school, all lawyers, you know, at least are passingly familiar with the idea of oral argument um, and, and should understand it. And they can read the rules, read the rules, read the rules. They can watch a podcast like this, or um, they can go on the court website, you know, www.georgiaappeals.us. They can go to our website and they can watch um, the oral argument that I did yesterday in about a week, or they can, they could have watched it live stream yesterday, uh, which is, is, is fun. And I like to, and talking about zoom, I had a, an appellate specialist, one of the best in the state say that he preferred having the Supreme Court on Zoom, because now that we have nine, you can't see what they look like. So you don't know if they're rolling their eyes, which they probably do, but they're, you know, you, you can't, you don't have that interplay. And, you know, right now I can see both your faces probably just as well as if you were in the courtroom and, uh, you know, reading your audience is something that's very important and you can do that on a zoom. Um, you, you know, sometimes the judge, judges or justices have their, um, their video off as I did accidentally when I was trying to screen out my dog barking I turned <laughs> my video off accidentally for a second you know I think I think when you're talking about that it's uh, uh and and this is one of those sort of 
uh, maybe inside baseball things amongst lawyers, but uh, I, I think that is a common complaint about about trial lawyers from appellate judges. It's oh yeah, he thinks we we've got a jury, and mm -hmm. the common complaint about uh, about appellate judges by trial lawyers is he's never set foot in a courtroom. He's got no idea what you know what the judge you know what the judge did wrong uh, there. So uh, there's, you know, where you, where you stand on a particular issue depends on where you've sat, uh, I think, before. <laughs> but uh, I, I was going to tell you, in talking about the British uh, system and the more lengthy appellate arguments, one of my favorite quotes is from a British barrister uh, who had a, a, a long appellate argument. Uh, his name was Effie Smith. He was one of Winston Churchill's great friends. And uh, the judge finally looked at him and he says, Mr. Smith, I've been listening to you now for more than more than an hour, and I'm none the wiser. And he says, "Perhaps, <laughs> my lord, but so much better informed." And uh, I, 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 I think that's uh, you know that's, that's the lawyer's <laughs> that's the lawyer's uh, point of view. You know, if I could just inform right. you a little bit more about it, you know, to convince you, like you're convincing a jury. That's right. Mm, exactly I like right. that. You know, I like that. Judge Barnes, you, you mentioned earlier in our conversation, one of your pet peeves was when an appellate lawyer tried to say, well, that's something the trial lawyer did. I didn't have anything to do with that. Um, any other pet peeves you want to tell us about that we can avoid while we're arguing in front, arguing in front of the court? Pet peeves. Well, you know, if you come into the courtroom and just talk to the, I am the presiding judge, so it, it shouldn't bother me, but if you're just arguing to the presiding judge or just to the judge that you think has the case because they're asking all the questions, you know, you're missing part of the panel. And uh, sometimes uh, uh, people who are not familiar with, I guess, appellate practice and uh, they they they're used to arguing to one judge mm -hmm. and they they just argued to one judge um mm -hmm. i had a uh a, a lawyer call me miss barnes once which really <laughs> i didn't even notice in in passing they never would have said that to a male judge but you know who was offended but the two male judges <laughs> sitting on either side of me yeah were, I, I get that i understand that um it, it's like if if uh, they called, you know, uh, oh, and it, uh, that's happened in public too once. I was with a, a state court trial judge and they go, oh, hi, Miss Barnes and judge so-and-so. I go, how interesting. <laughs> so tell, they, tell they us. Didn't know, they didn't do their homework. So that, no, that, sort, of, that sort of begs a question for me, which is, uh, you know, you, you were a lawyer for years before you were a judge. Uh, and, and we've talked also a little bit about, you know, how lawyers view judges, how judges view lawyers. Uh, the, the, the public views none of us like we want to be viewed uh, at all, uh, you know, in all likelihood. But, uh, you know, I have uh, had very uh, limited experience in sitting in judgment uh, on others. I, I, I was once on a judicial body that looked at judges, uh, and I, I just didn't like it very much. I mean, you know, I, I like uh, uh, I like uh, striving mightily and eating and drinking as friends, you know, with my adversaries. And so, uh, uh, could you talk? And, and I, I, I want to put put you on the point on the 
give you an opportunity, I'll say, to speak to this too, uh, because you have great credentials as a judge. I mean, I, I think we've got no, no one has uh, better credentials to be an appellate judge than Ann Barnes. And uh, the, the, uh, she has to go before the voters this time uh, too. And uh, a lot of the appellate judges are. And uh, I, I know uh, all, all judges, we can't have all judges that are as qualified as you are. I wish, I wish we could. But can you talk about what the difference is in demeanor and disposition from being a lawyer to being a judge and what kind of criteria that voters ought to be looking at when they go and vote for these very important uh, positions? Well, being a judge after being a lawyer and, and an advocate, and I was an advocate and uh, a zealous advocate, I think, it's a paradigm shift. You go from winning and you know we have professionalism, so I would consider it very unprofessional what I saw in one lawyer's office that winning is isn't everything it's the only thing that's in football maybe but even in football we should have ethics morality fair play and so on so but it's a true paradigm shift you know in my heart I might be pulling for uh you know Joan Smith to win the case or her side of the case but we have to follow the law. And, um, you know, as an advocate, you are espousing a position, you have a point of view, it's my client, uh, right or wrong, and they are not wrong, they just seem to be wrong. <laughs> as a judge, you really have to weigh the equities. And, you know, there are some lawyers who could never, ever, ever be a judge. I had one friend, as soon as I knew he, his case came up, I recused. The reason I recused is because I knew how he think, thought. He was not just a zealous advocate. He was someone who could not put himself in the shoes of the judge. And his client, he didn't view his client objectively while he was representing him, and especially while the client was paying him, if the client stopped paying him, suddenly there was a paradigm shift there, but that's another matter. <laughs> but he was that client's hired gun, best friend, you know, and they, it's all about winning. When you are a trial lawyer, your client doesn't want you to do a good job. They want you to win. They'll be happier if you do a good job and lose, but not very much happier. You know, they, it's all about winning. But as soon as I got to court, I realized, you know, if you have a dissent in a case, you know, my impulse is to try to win and revise and revise and, you know, lobby the other judges. But no, it's not about winning or losing. It's about getting the law right. And it's not just, even though every case is important, it's not just about this case. It's like, is this case going to do damage to the law. And, you know, there's the expression, hard cases make bad law. And sometimes they do. That's one reason why a peculiar case, a, a bizarre fact situation, sometimes we don't publish those because they're going to mislead, you know, the public, the lawyers. And, uh, you know, we try to, it's about the law, not about 
the individual case to a judge. And it's not about winning and losing. And that is the main paradigm shift. And some people getting back specifically to your question, I think are just not capable of making that shift. If I had ruled against my friend that I had recused, he would have thought that I was corrupt or stupid or that my law clerk wrote the case and I didn't know about it and I was too lazy to notice that that went out. I mean, I've heard all this from good lawyers, otherwise sane people who think <laughs> that that's the only way they could have lost their case. They can't imagine that, hey, the law wasn't on your side. We see it differently than you two. There are two sides of this story. You know, in the body of the law, this, 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 your result that you want wouldn't make sense. Your argument is not a strong one based on our experience. But, you know, I see even on, you know, the court in the past, I won't talk about it, but, you know, people who, you know, had people, trial judges, they always have a little bit, they lean a little bit toward affirming the trial judge. They have more empathy for the trial judge um, than, you know, because, well, we need to tell that judge exactly what to do. And we don't want to, you know, criticize them too much, but people who have never um, had that experience don't feel quite as protective, say, of the trial judge. Um, for instance, one, of, one of my friends, uh, one of my friends who uh, recently retired from the, from the trial bench had gone to sit with the Georgia Supreme Court as they, you know, have from time to time. And, and, uh, he, he, uh, he told me that he had, uh, let them know that, uh, they were making, they were taking 15 months to take, to make a decision that he had 15 seconds to make, uh, exactly. before. So I, I, you know, there's, there, there, uh, definitely is a, uh, uh, you know, again, where you, where, where you stand depends on where you've sat, you know, right. uh, on that issue. Well, that's one reason, uh, if you look at the, the way in, in evidence matters, that trial judge doesn't, you know, objection, they have to rule right then. Well, they don't have to, they could recess the court and call the court of appeals. When I first got to the court, I heard a story about a trial judge who used to recess her court and call the court of appeals, which is not a proper <laughs> thing to do. And if she didn't get a call back, she didn't you know, rule. But this was long before I was on the court and that, that person is no longer a judge, thankfully. Um, but, uh, you know, th that's a very rare thing. Most trial judges, the vast majority are very good, very quick on their feet. They, they know the law. They go to, uh, you know, at least yearly conferences and they study the, the evidence rules and, and they can just rule like that on the evidence. But, um, we give them a wide latitude. When you come up to the Court of Appeals with a question whether they, you know, sustained or, or um, did not sustain your objection, you're probably, if you come up as the appellant, you're probably going to lose uh, because in matters of evidence, trial judges are given a lot of deference, a lot of deference. and. Uh, you know, and, and that's one reason why, 
because they have to make those, mm -hmm. you know, split second uh, decisions. And unless the evidence that got in or didn't get in was so crucial and the error was so wrong, we're, we're not going to reverse that and, you know, make the judge try the whole case over when in the scheme of things, it probably didn't make you know, one bit of difference. As, as, as you both know, as trial lawyers, juries are so different than judges. So why would you argue a jury argument to a judge? Juries, jurors in the vast majority of cases, none of them have ever gone to law school. Some of them could. Lawyers and judges usually don't get on juries, though. And they don't have that's that. a sure strike right there. <laughs> you know, you've had legal training. Right, right. Roland Barnes, I know the late Judge Roland Barnes was on a jury once and uh, he insisted on not being elected the four person. And he said, I really would have ruled the other way. But he he was the rare person who didn't become the four person. You know, they always say if a lawyer's on a jury, that's going to be the four person and you you've got one person to convince. So basically, you've got a bench trial with a non judge. If right. you put a lawyer on the jury, which is, you know, you yeah. well, real sure that I've never, I've never allowed that to happen in any of my trials. Well, you know, we pick, we do, we do pick juries for what they don't know of, about the facts, you know, <laughs> as, as well as what they maybe don't know about the law. And mm -hmm. we pick judges for supposedly what they, what they do know um, and, and what their past experience is. Well, Judge Barnes, don't you? You, I, I'm, I'm going to say the way I see it is as a as a trial lawyer, and Lester's tried a few more cases than I've had. I've tried about 75, and I've argued to the Court of Appeals and Supreme Court about 45 times. Um, as as that lawyer, I feel like an appellate judge who has actually been in the arena, uh, struck a jury. That that's kind of been one of my standards. Have you ever struck a jury? that that you're, you're having that that experience uh absolutely gives you greater credibility and qualification to be an appellate judge that's the way i see it um for any appellate judge to have been in the arena facing those as as lester says those split second decisions you have to make um don't don't you agree that that makes you you uh if you've had that experience you just naturally do better as an appellate judge. And I understand the fidelity to the law. You're saying I'm, it's the fidelity to the law. Get it right. That's your number one goal. Get it right. I understand that. But we all bring our experience with us. And I would think that experience in the arena, the courtroom, um, makes you even more qualified. Well, I don't want to say definitively one way or the other. Obviously, for you, for most trial lawyers, they would all agree 100% with what you say. However, if you spoke to um, someone who's a trial judge who was never a trial lawyer, perhaps they practiced in transactional and then became a judge, they would probably disagree. And other, I understand other countries and other legal systems have a two-track system where all of the judges have never ever been in uh, the courtroom as attorneys, as advocates. And that that is very foreign to me. And I 
don't like that. I believe it's somewhat true in Germany and Japan that you, you, there's a different track and that you don't practice first as an advocate before you become a judge. And I may or may not be accurate on that because uh, someone said, oh no, it's not like that the other day. But uh, I, I personally feel that any experience you have, um, whether you uh, had extra experience in law school, did extra reading, actually tried cases in court, or practiced in, uh, you know, or worked in the area or, or that the case, the specific case is about. I just, I believe that education is not just, um, you know, what you learn in school, it's what you do, kind of like an expert witness, training, education, and experience, uh, travel, that sort of thing. I think the main thing to be a good judge is you need to be broad-minded. Uh, I don't think that necessarily comes from age alone, but age tends to give more experience, more reading, more, you know, more, more life experiences. Right, and I say that as being, you know, the the most senior appellate judge, I guess, in the state. Because I mean, which is kind of frightening to me. I, I, I feel like a young person until I say that, but I've served longer than anyone. Um, That's impressive. It, it's very, it's very impressive. And you know, I think uh, to uh, uh, Robin and I, I, I agree with Robin. You know about the. Uh, you know, having somebody that's been uh, in, in a courtroom. Uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, I guess my complaint about, uh, about the appellate courts, and if I, you know, I, I, everybody, there are things they would change. You know, it's this is sort of the if I were king of the world, and even you, Judge, you know, you're on the Georgia uh, Court of Appeals and the most senior judge, you don't have the ability to change to make it like you want it because you've got other judges to deal with and other things. But I think one of the things that, uh, and that, the Supreme court uh, and the Supreme court. Right. And I, so I think one of the things that, um, uh, that I, I would say constructive criticism about the George court of appeals, I'd love to have, uh, you know, like a, a perfect panel for me as a diverse panel, instead of background, you know, maybe somebody that's never been a judge before that has tried a lot of cases, and, you know, maybe somebody who uh, has been a trial judge that's got really good sort of common sense as to what, uh, and, and we've talked about how you rule on the law instead of common sense, but the law has some practical implications that I think, for example, the U.S. Supreme Court never really fully catches on to how that plays out in a courtroom down below. Down below. And then maybe somebody who's professorial and scholarly and, you know, a real good scholar and if you had all three of those folks and all three of them, as you said, the practice used to be, had to sign off on it or at least get it checked out someplace else. But, you know, I, I worry that my uh, case that uh, uh, has uh, uh, great far-reaching implications in, in everyday practice for trial lawyers in courtrooms will go to that one person who's never tried a case but maybe has a great scholarly background and uh, they're, they're the assigned author and I'm stuck with them and the others just sort of sign off on it. That's what concerns me. Well, we generally don't do that. You know, um, we all 
look at the case very carefully and consider it. And uh, I don't rewrite other people's opinions if I agree with the substance. I'm not, I, they're not my law clerks. So I'm not going to, to take the sub Judas out of their opinion and mark it out and say, I won't concur unless you delete this uh, uh, silly phrase, because some people really like that. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think like the fear that um, I remember uh, former uh, Chief Judge uh, J.D. Smith said he got an MFR once that uh, said that, that, that uh, oh, and I've seen this more than once. Uh, in fact, the best one is not the J.D. Smith story, but that it must have been drafted by a rogue law clerk, not just a new and inexperienced law clerk, but a rogue law clerk. And, you know, we read, oh, man. you know, not only do, um, you know, we read the draft opinions and edit and change them after assigning them. Um, and telling them what we're looking for and what we see in the case. Uh, they do the research in the initial draft, but uh, not only does the drafting judge do that, but the other two judges really dig in. And uh, you know, some of them would nitpick to the point that it was irritating. Uh, there, there were stories about a judge who used to always send sticky notes and um, another judge who had a stamp made up where he would stamp on the sticky note, just vote. <laughs> you know, you concur or dissent, you know, don't. don't, don't he, he didn't want to hear, hear your opinion. He just wanted. Yeah. I, yeah. And, and I think there's a lot, you know, the, the, the we all, we talk about the legislature and somebody says, you know, you don't want to watch law made uh, at the legislature and like you don't want to watch sausage made. Right. And uh, that's certainly true when you're making law on the appellate court or from the trial lawyers, you know, or the appellate lawyer side. I mean, it's it's a it's a sometimes sort of, you know, messy, uh, you know, messy process. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that I worry about in our world today is that we are at the end of persuasion. You know, where 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 everybody has their mind made up on every topic that's ever going to come before them and there's no no persuading them one way or another and uh you I, I think it's exhibited uh more on the u.s supreme court probably than any place else i mean you know uh most most lawyers and supreme court watchers uh can you know look at a case and say here's where the votes go and there's no you know I, I, I don't think arguing before the U.S. Supreme Court is an art anymore because there's nobody to be persuaded. And I, that's something that I hope doesn't fall down to our state Supreme Courts and all our states and our, our uh, Court of Appeals, whether they're statewide or districts like they are in Florida and Texas and Louisiana. Well, I certainly think that the Georgia system is a great system. Um, I think the federal system has its flaws and you know, you're pointing to one of them that uh, whether it's true or not, the public perception is largely that whoever appointed you gave you a perspective and an agenda. And that's why I think it's great that here in the state of Georgia that judges are elected. 
um, their problems with election, but it kind of meets the balance between, you know, accountability and independence because uh, appointment, although, you know, they're good things, you know, the, the candidate is thoroughly vetted by the governor and, and so on and the, uh, the uh, judicial nominating committee being vetted by the, the voters is also something. I mean, they're, like in all politics, there's opposition research and so on. And uh, I think in Georgia, running nonpartisan is a good thing because we don't have the polarization of uh, having to run by a party designation. And many people were saying, well, we want to inform the voters by putting a D or an R after the judge's name. And I go, that's just wrong. Partisan, look it up in the dictionary. If you're a textualist, you love your dictionary and you look in the dictionary, partisan. That means biased. Do you want a biased judge? Do you want a judge with an agenda? No. And what you want is someone who is qualified by their training, education, and experience, not by the fact that they have an agenda and that they want to remake the judicial system into their own creation and make the cases go the way they want them to go, especially as at an appellate level, that is very, very inappropriate. You know, King Solomon may have achieved justice by, you know, getting the sword out and threatening to cut the baby in half so that the real mother, you know, comes forward and achieves justice like that. But that, that doesn't happen in the appellate courts. The appellate courts are supposed to be, you know, correcting the error of the trial judge made in the court below, not a do-over. And you want people who will see that and who will not try to push the, the, the arc of justice in their direction by pulling on it, you know, um, and dragging it over into their, uh, into their basketball court or whatever. They, you know, you want, you want someone who'll be fair-minded, who is intelligent, who will work hard, and who will strive to write clear, concise, consistent opinions, uh, consistent with the rule of law and not try to advance their own agenda or any particular uh, agenda of any kind. And, and we all have some biases based on our experiences, but someone who can put those aside and rule on the case, on the law and the facts, not on who we like and so on. And, you know, I was thinking about one thing that I wanted to get out there and I think I already said it somewhat, but I wanna make sure that people know that if I rule on a case, it's not necessarily my preferred result. I'm not doing it because I like this result because it comes out of my heart and soul based on all my experiences it's because it's the right result based on the law and the facts. Sometimes there are cases that are in the margins and that might push us one way or the other, but it's very important to follow the law and uh, not all the law is written by the legislature. Um, there's common law and uh, common law made by the courts 
helps to fill in those gaps. And that's in one way that, uh, you know, judges do uh, have a little discretion, but it's really not much because we have something called precedent. And even if I don't like a precedent, if it's been followed over years and years, there's a reason for that. And you can't just throw out the baby with the bathwater and change things overnight. Often, I remember when I was first on the court, it would really bother me that I, the result was not what I personally would have liked. You know, sometimes in the criminal cases, there've been cases, I won't discuss any specific one, where, you know, it seems like an injustice is being done, but sometimes strict enforcement of a, a you know, a bad law is the best way to get it changed. And sometimes, you know, our Supreme Court can strike down a law, for instance, as being unconstitutional, but other times the legislature will see the folly of what seemed to be a good idea at the time and change the law. And the legislature guides us in that, you know, in all matters of interpretation, we have a statute 131A that I wrote one of my master's thesis about, you know, the court shall look to the intent of the legislature, diligently search for the intent of the legislature, looking at the old law, the evil and the remedy. And you don't have to do that in most cases involving a statute, but you don't just look at a case in terms of what you want, the result you want. You look at all the law, not just the, the statute that's in front of you, and not you don't just look up the individual words in the dictionary. You have to look at the context. And uh, it's important that people understand that judges are looking at precedent, they're looking at uh, judicial precedent, they're looking at um, laws and you know, experience does figure in in that, but uh, you know, it, it's not our personal preference. And sometimes, you know, I can sleep at night ruling not the way I would personally prefer, not getting the result that I might personally prefer if I were the lawyer or the client and in an ideal world, because I know that I've followed the rule of law and I know what that requires. Judge Barnes, we've been taking a lot of your time this morning. Um, I, I want to ask you our last question that we ask every guest. Uh, and you've talked a lot about it today already, but I hope you've given some thought over the years to this. And our question is, how do you define justice? What is justice to you? Well, there's simple answers and complex answers. And I, I've already said too much, but, you know, justice is... Mm -hmm. You know, first and foremost, you know, fairness, uh, equal justice under law, and uh, it's not for just us. It's justice for all. I mean, equal justice for all the 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 poor and the rich. You know, the old and the young, and it's important that justice be seen not as it's an important value. It's not a value to be dismissed is that the only thing that counts is law. Justice, you have to stand back and look at the law to see that it makes sense. Uh, common sense has to come into it and uh, rationality and logic and uh, truth. 
truth is an important aspect of justice, but many people confuse justice with a good result, the result that I want. And, uh, you know, that's, that's not justice, but uh, I think fairness, impartiality, truth, all of those make up justice. And it's, it's something that, although it may be something looked at from different angles, seen, it's still the same diamond. Say, if you see the diamond from the top, it looks different from here and people, but it, it's a basic value of fairness, impartiality, and uh, truth. All of those are elements. That's, a, that's, that's one of the reasons that your job is so hard and that you do such a wonderful job. I've said if somebody comes to my door offering me uh, a judgeship, I'm going to meet them with a shotgun and run them off my property <laughs> uh, because I, I don't have that temperament, and you certainly do, and we're, we're very, very fortunate to have you serving uh, uh, on our Georgia appellate courts. No, we need all kinds. We need good lawyers. We need zealous advocates. Well, we, uh, we appreciate your service to the state of Georgia, Judge Barnes, and you've been doing it for, for a while. And uh, just thank you for your service and thank you for being with us this morning. Uh, we've had a lovely conversation with you and really enjoyed, enjoyed our, our time with you. And thank you for being with us. Well, I'm honored to be, to be here and thank you very much. And for our listeners, again, I, I want to let you know we've been talking with the Honorable Ann Elizabeth Barnes, presiding judge of the Georgia Court of Appeals. And you may lear learn more about the Georgia Court of Appeals. And as Judge Barnes says, uh, even watch their oral arguments both live every day uh, that they have oral arguments or they have archived oral arguments that you can watch on their website, which is gaappeals.us, gaappeals.us. Thank you, Judge Barnes. Thank you very much. Thank you, both of you. All right, Lester, time for that part of our podcast where we share a little uh, legal news item that's been in the news recently. And I'm going to turn the floor over to you and tell us what you got for us. Well, I, I actually have an appropriate news story, but not just one news story. Uh, I want to refer our uh, listeners uh, to that Google machine and tell them to go Google Colston 4, C-O-L-S-T-O-N 4, uh, F-O-U-R, and you will see a myriad of stories about uh, four uh, residents of the United Kingdom who in Bristol uh, back in June of 2020 toppled the uh, statue of a 17th century slave trader named Edward Colston, pulled the statue down, toppled it into the river, and all four were tried by a jury uh, in the criminal courts of the United Kingdom for damage to property, and they were all acquitted. And uh, the interesting thing to me, and why I think it's interesting here, is that we are confronted with all types of uh, issues like this, whether you're talking about the January 6th uh, Capitol riots, you're talking about statues pulled down uh, during some of the uh, uh, Black Lives Matter protests, and a lot of these cases go to the jury, and I think the interesting thing about this article, and you've got to sort of read more than one, is in the aftermath, you had politicians in Great Britain saying, oh, we ought to do away with the jury system. 
or they don't have quite as uh, much uh, double jeopardy uh, protection, British citizens don't, as United States citizens do. And they're saying, oh, we ought to try them again. We need to get some more, some more evidence and go back and, and, and try those again. And I think there's a real temptation, and I want to tie this up to uh, what uh, we talked about with Judge Barnes earlier. There's a real temptation to say, oh, I really don't like the jury system because I don't like the outcome of this case. Or I really love the jury system because I do uh, uh, like the outcome of this case. And I think it's important as we try to educate people about the jury system that we understand we're gonna get results that we don't like as long as we have jury trials. And uh, that is an acceptable uh, thing in my view because uh, the jury system may be the worst in the world except for all the others, as Winston Churchill once said about democracy. Uh, but I think it's real interesting that the reaction of the, of the British public in an English common law country, uh, both pro and con about that. And I would urge folks to uh, read not one, but multiple articles about that. Great point. Uh, my, my first reaction was that it was probably something that needed to come down. And, and I think, too, you know, but there are a lot of people that would probably say, oh, the Capitol needed invading on January 6th, too, <laughs> which I find totally preposterous. Right. But I think, you know, one of the things that the jury system gives us is the requirement that the law be supported by, uh, by, by folks from all walks of life who come and hear the evidence and make the decision in that case. I, I, I think the yeah. I think when you read this these articles about this, they had a very valid defense. Uh, jury nullification in criminal cases dates back to the 1700s here with the Alien and Sedition Act. So I, I've got no problem with the, with the jury's conclusion in this case. But uh, I think most people that would argue that it's wrong would argue based on what the outcome was, mm -hmm. not on what the process is. And uh, you know, as uh, doing this podcast as host for the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation, uh, I think it's our job to sort of challenge people to think about the great uh, privilege it is to have the right to jury trial, both civilly and criminally here in the United States of America. Totally agree. Um, and my item also kind of brings into some of the things Judge Barnes was talking about when she mentioned a uh, a lawyer had something on his wall that said something like winning is winning's the only thing. This notion that lawyers, there are some lawyers that feel like they have to win at any cost, regardless of professionalism or ethics. And, and obviously that is not uh, the way you should practice law. Um, but my art, my little news article is about a lawyer in Indiana uh, who is suspended uh, for a threat he made in a deposition to expose intimate photographs of the plaintiff. And so this was in Indiana in a case where the plaintiff was pro se and she sued a man uh, for harassing her. And in the deposition, the man, the defendant, defendant's lawyer slid across the table some uh, apparently explicit intimate photographs and threatened her that if you don't dismiss your case, I'm publicizing all these photographs of you. And ultimately, uh, first of all, I can't imagine the, the mental trauma that that added on to this woman's uh, issue. Um, but then she she to stop that she dismissed her case. I don't know how 
his conduct got to the state Supreme Court of Indiana, but it did. And they suspended him uh, for a period of time, I think for 60 days, uh, for unethical, unprofessional conduct of threatening a woman in a deposition that that if you don't dismiss your case, I'm making all these rather explicit, intimate photographs of you public. Now, how do you like that? Um, regard, regardless of what the law was or anything like that, it was just a pure threat. And I would say that's a that's a lesson of how not to behave as a lawyer. Uh, I think the Indiana Supreme Court got it right to suspend this law. Oh, it was 90 days. Suspend him for 90 days. And, and hopefully he'll learn a lesson that uh, good lawyers don't resort to tactics like that. Um, we practice by the golden rule that we want to be treated the way um, we, we want to treat you the way we would expect to be treated, not with threats of harassment and exposing someone. I, I can't even imagine that. But um, absolutely. And people should not be uh, chilled from uh, going through the courthouse door to seek justice uh, by, you know, what in essence sounds like very similar to blackmail. Blackmail. That's exactly what it is. Uh, absolutely. You know, uh, th this is uh, it, it, it's a shakedown. Give me your give me your claim, or uh, or, or, or uh, you, you're gonna you're gonna regret it here. Yeah, or you're gonna walk the plank to the that's entire it. world. Yeah, that's right. not that's not what the practice of law was meant to be. So uh, hopefully he will have learned his lesson after 90 days of suspension. Great, what a great episode today, Robin. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Love Judge Barnes. Love the job she's doing for the state. So I guess that concludes us until next time. Until next time, we'll, we'll see, you, see in you in court. Thank you for listening to See You in Court, brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, seeyouincourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to See you in court podcast at gmail.com. The producer of this podcast is Raz Misher. We thank Noreen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and the Georgia Tech students who help bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. On behalf of Robin Fraser-Clark and Lester Tate, until our next episode, we'll see you in court.